one is going to be Temple of Doom, and one's going to be uh, Last Crusade. I'm not actually sure which is which. Temple of Doom is when they rip the hearts out. No, 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 no. I mean, oh. which is <laughs> which <laughs> conceit. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Test Kitchen in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 223 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're planning our next great campaign. But first the rogue traders finish the job in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, Beatrix Kiddo kills Bill and the rest of the Deadly Vipers in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Elderwood Academy. They are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. Yep, all of their products are crafted to look like spellbooks, scroll cases, codexes, and other awesome fantasy gear that we love. Especially after we actually got our hands on them at Gen Con this year. Yeah, so one cool thing that they've had at Gen Con but are now selling on their website as well is all of the Acquisitions, Inc., um, like the employee store merchandise, uh, which has the like stylized AI logo on it. Um, it says this Acquisitions Incorporated and that kind of thing. As someone who is not an Ac Inc. listener, uh, can you explain how these differ from the uh, regular merchandise from Elderwood? They make a bunch of different products, right? And lots of them have leather on them or they have some type of engraving on them. And typically you pick what that design is. So like I have one that has a dragon. Um, you might get one that has a phoenix or a flame or just like a mystical symbol or something like that. Instead of that, the Acquisitions Inc. line has the AI logo in its place. Nice. So everyone knows that you are the kind of person who plays D&D at the office. <laughs> and also the kind of person who plays D&D and watches other people play D&D. Nice. You're multitasking. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> once you're in initiative order, it's basically just watching other people play D&D. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I like it because I don't always care for like the typical fantasy symbols. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily love the thematic aspect of Elderwood Academy products as much as I like the functional aspect. Right. So having something that just has like the logo of, uh, of a show that I like is a little speaks to me a little better than necessarily like a lion head does. You're not like a bubbling cauldron kind of guy. No, believe it or not. I'm surprised actually. I'm, <laughs> I'm shocked. I'm shook to my core. I, uh, I prefer just like um, sparkles and stardust. That actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. All right. So listeners, you can find all of those products and many more at elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split. So uh, one more reminder that we are fast approaching the end of our streaming um, Band of Blades campaign, Stream of Blades, over on twitch.tv slash don't split the podcast. We had to take a week off, but we are back now and uh, we are marching. Time is advancing ever so quickly towards the uh, final showdown at Sky Dagger Keep. So uh, it's not too late to tune in now. You can check it out on YouTube or you can catch us live Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Yeah, time is advancing, uh, sometimes faster than the Legion is advancing. So I guess we'll see what happens. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Shane, uh, how are you feeling? Rather hungover. Oh, yeah? Uh, mm-hmm. Me too. 
And I think that might be because we just got back, like literally just got back from Thrillicon 4. Yeah, little little debate about the numbering system, but yeah, three point seven five. I wanted to call it Thrillicon Pathfinder. I'm 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 on board for four. I like four. Let's just skip through the the half numbers. You never played Thrillicon Fourth Edition. <laughs> You're right. I just blacked it out. So Thrillicon is, of course, our uh, mostly annual, maybe semi-annual kind of gaming retreats that we do with our home group, where we. Uh, rent a house we hang out all weekend we play a bunch of different games over the course of like 48 hours and then we all drive back home and uh, spend the next two weeks recovering i think we've finally hit upon the right schedule for this one you know we've been kind of gone back and forth the last couple of times thrillicon 2 there was too much drinking uh-huh thrillicon 3 there were too many games and not enough drinking uh-huh but this time this time mwah uh, props to Steph for putting together a schedule in a spreadsheet for everybody. It's getting sad. But effective. We're getting organized. Uh, so let's see. What games did we actually knock out? We showed up and, hey, we actually played the Wendy's Feast of Legends game. It was really bad, and that's all we have to say about that product ever. The rules don't work so great. You know what? As a marketing gimmick, it totally worked because then we ended up ordering Wendy's and then felt bad about ourselves. Felt real bad. Both, yeah. Both from a from a physical perspective and also an emotional one. Yeah. And also because, you know, we ordered Wendy's and gave them money. So. Right. Uh, let's see. Then after that, we did uh, a nice long Eberron session. We always try to get in some like long games from the ongoing campaign. So we did like seven hours of Eberron. We did a double heist. We did a heist to steal you the did, stuff we needed did. to do the second heist. You thought one heist was coming. It ended faster than you expected. But then, don't worry, slips right into heist number two. Mm-hmm. Pulled off pretty effectively, I might add. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. Mm-hmm. In like 70 episodes, we'll get to uh, get to recap that. <laughs> That's totally true. You'll find out more later, listeners. You'll uh, find more in a year and a half. Or longer. We'll see how long we stretch it out. And then we spent uh, most of Saturday playing Birthright. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess arguing over taxes. Nope, not arguing over taxes anymore. Arguing over, oh, arguing over foreign policy. Mostly actually arguing over what we're doing with all these rules. <laughs> <laughs> so we have uh, we have been playing Birthright for a long time. Like, I think we started that game over three years ago now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we are all um, regents who formed the ruling council of the nation of Tornin. Uh Which is now the nation of Alamy. Right. Well, in our last uh, Thrillicon game, we invaded our neighboring nation, Alamy. We reunited the traditional nation of Alamy. Right. Um, and so in the process, we made some allies with, uh, with some of our neighbors. And this was the first time after over a year uh, of returning to Birthright to sort of deal with the fallout uh in addition to the story fallout of course there was the fallout of jim's um manically compiled uh forged in the dark hack of birthright Mm -hmm. rules Mm -hmm. uh, which will probably consume way too much of my time for the next few months you know what i think worked better than the second edition birthright rules uh uh yeah i mean more or less <laughs> it was very slow does it need some work sure uh am i happy that i have a son who is a tree yes you did need fortune in the dark to have a tree son <laughs> well now i have two 
Uh, let's see. Then we played Be Gay, Do Crimes, which is an adaptation of Honey Heist. Yes. Honey Heist being a game about bears that steal honey and Be Gay, Do Crimes, actually kind of the same thing. Uh, it's a uh, one pager. It's one of those where you have one, uh, two stats. One is gay. One is criminal. You've got to keep the two in balance while you uh, conduct some sort of heist. Also, you can randomly roll being an actual bear. Hey. Right. <laughs> so that was a very good drunk game. I was just going to say great game to play while you're drinking. And fortunately, we were. Right. Uh, and then the last game that we played was uh, was a concept that I actually borrowed from the One Shot RPG Discord. Um, but this was everyone is Lazman John. Uh, so we played an Imperial Guardsman in uh, Warhammer 40k who heard uh, instead of being crazy and hearing strange voices in his head, he's just of the universe and hears the voices of six different deities in his head the four chaos gods as well as uh what we had um gork and mork the emperor and the omnissiah mm-hmm. so that was just a straight up game of everyone is john except set in 40k and uh i regret to inform everyone that john has passed on well he was trying to commandeer a bane blade at the time <laughs> he was executed while commandeering a bane blade <laughs> i think he killed three commissars first he killed three commissars mostly with their own weapons <laughs> well that was necessary to get the points <laughs> uh, and he failed to get an exterminatus on the planet well you know next time right uh so i think it was successful all around yeah, it was a good, good weekend. We ate a lot of sweets. We got lucky with an extra birthday cake, so that was mm-hmm. nice. Lots of chips. Uh, oh, my God, so many cream puffs, which uh, Steph went above and beyond and made those the food buff for uh, the Wendy's game, which, yes, you get buffs and debuffs for the kind of food you that you eat. Which yes. Is, don't, ignore that rule. Ignore it. Spoiler, you have to eat Wendy's to get the buffs. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> I like how you ate five cream puffs seeking like the one buff that you were looking for. I ate four cream puffs seeking the proper buff and then ate another cream puff because I just wanted another cream puff and it was like, I'll just take the hit. I don't care. (laughs) Okay. Or partial gluttony, partial greed. This is worth a minus one to grace or intelligence or whatever. I don't care. Uh, and then one more thing to talk about before we move on to Dynasty Unwarranted is uh, I was interviewed on a new podcast uh, called Roll for Persuasion. Um, the host of the show reached out to me, um, Andrew. He's a listener. Uh, he was starting his podcast where he interviews various people, um, the content creators from around like uh, tabletop role playing games and D and D communities. Uh, he asked me to be on. I think I'm like episode five, maybe. As we're recording this, I'm not sure because the episode hasn't come out, but when this is released, it will have come out yesterday. So um, check that out. It's Roll for Persuasion on iTunes. Um, I think it's rollforpersuasion.com, but uh, we talked a little bit about what it's like creating podcasts, advice for podcasts, and sort of um, how that has changed the way that I play games and things like that. So it was a fun conversation. Did you embarrass us? Oh, absolutely. Good. I expect no less. Yep. That's why I'm here. All right, speaking of embarrassing your friends, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game, played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. 
And on the Death World Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the rogue traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and Prophet. How's that going for them? Well, you have located the Eldar Spirit Chamber in the heart of the Eldar Exodite Barrows, and you have begun the siphoning ritual. Uh, of course, the world spirit that you are siphoning out of this Barrows is fighting back. Doesn't They're it all... know we're trying to help it? You're not. Uh, we're trying to help us, and That's you know, true. if we succeed, then we're basically the world spirit, and so just give up already? <laughs> yeah, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't quite get that. <laughs> Lame. So you have a wraith guard stepping out of the engravings on the wall, as well as as well as the spirits of Exodite warriors, uh, long past themselves. This battle is raging while Flair and Silva are desperately trying to keep the ritual stable while they're working with the spirit seer who sent you on this mission. Uh, you've got this entire group in this chamber where just waves of psychic energy are washing over you, kind of increasingly corrupting you from all of this. And uh, and then of course to add. To add insult to injury, the Exodites themselves, being as they are spirit guardians and entirely psychic projections, uh, have warp weapons that seem to completely ignore your armor and also corrupt you. Which was the most disappointing part of this entire thing, because we have now spent, I don't know, two years (laughs) fetishizing armor and weapons Uh (laughs) to the point where we just didn't bother getting tougher. Yep. (laughs) We just got better armor. Yep. <laughs> so it was great against the Wraith Guard. The Wraith Guard did nothing to you. It was those pesky little uh, Exodites you kept like yeah, one shotting, but they were just seriously you. with their like magic lightsabers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but finally, uh, when we are basically on our last legs, the ritual reaches a critical mass. Uh, we do overcome those Wraith Guard, and the Exodite warriors now barely have the strength to physically manifest. Yeah, and then the spirit seer helps you close the ritual, and Flair and Silva slump to the ground exhausted. Uh, except that Flair has a couple new tattoos. Yeah, he's got a witch mark, which is a small bit of corruption that indicates that he's been touched by the warp. Uh, of course, compared to the eye in the middle of his forehead, that you know third eye that he bandages up, uh, it's not too bad considering he is a powerful and horribly corrupted psyker. Yeah, that one's kind of just a cost of doing business. You know, happens to the best of them eventually. No big deal. Uh, More concerning is the witch curse that he has also rolled on the mutation table, uh, which strengthens his psychic ability, but has permanently corrupted his flesh to the point where he must hide it from the fellow rogue traders and all Imperial agents, inquisitorial witch hunters, and even members of his own noble house. Nice. But you know what? I wouldn't worry about it. We've uh, dealt with the Inquisition before and hid extraordinarily heretical things from them in the Uh past. I think we can do it again. You've dealt with one extremely... (laughs) Nope, that's not true. You've dealt with dozens of Inquisitors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, one time we just sold off our rogue trader's brother to Uh get them off our case. You might recall that that was the, uh, <laughs> there were multiple of those Portaquilla massacres, <laughs> multiple investigations. Yeah, I think at the first one, we just named it the first Portaquilla massacre, just assuming right, that exactly. there would be more. All right, now with the siphoning concluded, the Spirit Seer instructs the rogue traders on what to do next, which is, of course, strip the barrows of all its wraith bone and deliver it to the Exodites of the Cloud Barons. Along with a warning that, well, you no longer have a world spirit, 
And so it can't protect you from she who thirsts, the horrible chaos god Slanesh. And we'll find out how that message is received next week. All right. So this week we're talking about campaign prep. Uh, we've had a couple of listeners and people on Discord asking about how we prep games, thought we might talk about that for a bit. This is an episode for anyone out there who's going to run their own game. Yeah, you're going to run a game. It's going to take multiple sessions. It's going to be more than one adventure. You're running a campaign. So now what? How do you get ready for this? Like, What do you do in order to be able to pull this off? That's campaign prep. Uh, you just prepare a one-shot every week. John. Yeah, I mean that that's like stringing together pearls. Mm-hmm. And it's it's much easier because uh that way you don't need to do character creation every week. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, you're going to end up creating a lot of pregens. <laughs> All right. So, campaign prep is actually three phases that will happen before your first session. Uh first up is the elevator pitch. This is the idea that you're going to tell the players to actually get them on board. I mean, you may not even necessarily be the GM at this point. You might be like another player. Everyone's thinking about what is the next game that we're going to play once whatever we're doing right now is over. And you say, hey, I've got an idea. Do you want to do it? Right, exactly. Like, here's the pitch. You know, we're uh, we're in Eberron and we're all Lazar pirates, right? Like, cool. It's, and- it's never, it's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> So I think for our purposes, we're assuming you've kind of already got this figured out, right? Like you at least have a some sense of what kind of campaign you want to run and who's going to be a part of it. Yeah, if you are about to prep a campaign and have not yet asked your players if they want to play that campaign, put everything down and go do that first. Yep, yep, cool. yep. Prep just enough to get the players on board. <laughs> that's your campaign prep now. All right, what's step two? So step two is actually getting ready for the campaign. So that's that's real prep. So this is everything you need to have a session zero and then get ready to run a series of connected adventures, right? To some type of satisfying conclusion. And then step three is the actual nitty gritty of preparing for your first session of the campaign. Right. So we're going to focus on that second step because that tends to be the one that is least familiar to people who have run games before or who have played games before. Right. And we're going to assume that you are going to have a session zero and that you already have the buy-in from your players. If you haven't had a session zero or you don't know how to do that, I think it's like three episodes ago we we revisited the topic. Right, yeah. Because I think that is an important part of the way that we prep our campaigns. So I think before we get into it, sort of frame this up, I think there are some factors that you should consider while you're prepping a campaign. And this is like kind of what you always want to come back to as you're figuring out what you're doing. Um, I think we can talk from our own experience here. Um, given that I am currently running Band of Blades, you are currently running Eberron. Um, we have both run, you know, 40K and Eberron in the past. Like, we definitely have plenty of examples to draw from, right? So the first thing to pay attention to is what is the setting? Um, this might be published. This might be your own thing. Um, but take note of, like, what are the genre conventions? What are the tones that are present? Like, what are the things that you're going to emphasize over the course of running this game? Like, what do you need to bring out? Um, and then also, like, what are the inspirations from other sources that can be your touchstones? Yeah, like, a Band of Blades game is not going to be slapstick comedy. Um, there are a lot of, like, comedic touchstones that aren't really going to work. They also probably aren't going to work in, in most Eberron games, but they'll work fine if you're playing Acquisitions Incorporated. Right. 
Yeah, like so for Band of Blades, right? Like I watched, I went and I watched Band of Brothers. Oh no, terrible! <laughs> um, mostly because like Band of Brothers is the story of a you know the 101st Airborne dropping in on D Day in Normandy, and it is a shared story across multiple characters. There are a few that are consistently in every single episode and and central to the plot but there are a whole bunch more that you really fall in love with that are only there like on the periphery but that kind of bring the richness of the story to life and that's that's what i wanted in band of blades right and that's kind of what we had talked about in like sort of planning the show was like how do we bring more characters into it right like how do we create the legion as a character made up of all these like individual personalities. Yeah, I think once you've kind of got the the nugget of what you want the story to feel like more than necessarily what it will be about, you can do all these all this research and it's a really good excuse to sort of immerse yourself in uh, either the lore, whether you're reading source books or you're watching inspirational material like movies. I think a lot of RPGs will have um in an, an acknowledgement section or um a like sources section that tells you what the designers were watching and reading while they were making this game. Right, right. Especially if it's not like a licensed IP. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're running a Star Wars game, by all means, go watch your favorite Star Wars. <laughs> like, I mean, it, I, I would say you probably should do that just so at least you have canon in your head to mm-hmm. fall back on. Yeah, or I mean, like, there is no harm in like trying to recreate the tone um or like some of the conventions of like just your favorite tv show right like if you are running edge of the empire and you want to go watch rebels i i think you could do a whole lot worse for prepping your campaign than just watching you know 10 episodes of of rebels yeah or 13 episodes of firefly (laughs) yeah that too (laughs) Uh, and honestly you might have already been doing this because a lot of the times you come up with an idea for a campaign while you are watching something else and you're like oh i want to run something like this you know you're watching deadwood and you're like great okay i'm I'm running a western that's the next thing i'm doing right right and then a lot of like sometimes like i have the kernel of the idea for the story but i need more to kind of flesh out what's going to happen around it mm-hmm. um, that's where all this stuff is useful then at that point you've got to decide what the conceit of the story of the campaign is going to be um if you're in Eberron, it's quite likely that, you know, you're starting off by investigating the Day of Mourning. Although, of course, you don't have to be. It could be taking place in an entirely different continent. But you need to know that ahead of time before you're introducing a party into a situation. Yeah, I mean, like, the difference in an Eberron game investigating the Day of Mourning versus, like, an Eberron game where you're making archaeological expeditions into Zendrik, right? Like, both Eberron, but way different conceits. Yeah, and like both can be Indiana Jones, but one is going to be Temple of Doom. Uh-huh. <laughs> and one's going to be uh, Last Crusade. I'm not actually sure which is which. Temple of Doom is when they rip the hearts out. No, 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 no. I mean, oh. which is <laughs> which conceit. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you. Okay. <laughs> um, likewise, you know, you might figure, are you burn spies fighting like against vampires, right? Like that's a, a pretty basic Knights Black Agents thing. Um, maybe you instead focus on like what is the agency that's involved or what is the city that you're going to be based in, right? Like I, I'm reading a lot about Paris. I want to run a game set in Paris. Um, 
you know, maybe that's where you focus is the conceit. Right. You're drilling down into what part of the setting your players can uh, expect to interact with, right? You you can't just be like, hey, it's in Forgotten Realms. That that could be any kind of game that takes place in a setting with magic. Right. Right. You, you say, hey, actually, this is going to be um, an urban adventure set in Waterdeep where, <laughs> guess what? You're going into uh, Undermountain. Right. Versus we're fighting orcs along with Drist. <laughs> we're spell plaguing along with uh, io no you're you're gonna roll a d6 and on a three and up you die oh perfect get me out of there quick because it's the spell unless you're uh hell ruin and then you just die um i think like you know superhero games right where you're repeatedly saving the city from villains like i think that's where maybe you focus on what are some inspirational villains for you, right? Like what's, what are some ideas for villains that will kind of give you like kind of an interesting backdrop so that you can set plots and, and put things in motion. Yeah. And what era is this golden age, silver age, or is this Batman in the nineties? Right. Uh, that's the, um, edgy age. Uh, yep. Well, I guess the, an attempt to be <laughs> right. The Everybody's the crow. <laughs> All right, now that you know what the players will be interacting with, what the sort of setting on a personal level will be, you've got to think about what role the PCs have in that kind of story. What are you expecting them to try to accomplish? Yeah, so, you know, if they're um, if they're archaeologists, you know, making expeditions into Zendrick, like, what is the thing that's driving them? What are you expecting them to find? What is the... Um, challenge that they'll need to overcome in order to find that thing. You know, like what is, what's the difficulty that's going to oppose them? This is a lot of the information that your players are actually going to want in your session zero because they're building characters. You know, this is going to be a long campaign. You're expecting that you're going to be playing this character for, I mean, it could be months. It could be years, right? Right. So you want someone who has, you want to build somebody who has the skills or who will fit into the story that we're about to run. You know, right. if this is an, urban adventure game i don't want to build a barbarian unless i specifically want to play fish out of water for the next three years exactly (laughs) so a cool thing about band of blades when we were at this point is like you as the players chose who the villains are right like you chose who the broken were going to be which sets a lot of the tonal and sort of challenge oriented it answers those questions for you Mm -hmm. right because you chose um render for example that it was going to be very much a military driven campaign rather than like um you know choosing like blighter would have been much more about like body horror and like corruption and sort of twisting and and just grossness right and this doesn't need to be decided up front nor does it need to be unilateral right like the original Morning Glory campaign was a much more emergent kind of campaign where, you know, I, in my head, established some things that I wanted to have happen. I, you know, I wanted the party to be interacting with the cause and discovering eventually the cause of the day of morning. Right. Uh, but I didn't necessarily know how I wanted them to do that, nor did I even necessarily know at that point what the cause of the day of morning was. Well, and I mean, keep in mind, because at that point, you didn't necessarily know who the PCs were yet. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yes, that's exactly it, right? Everyone sort of brought characters to the table, and we talked about how they, they fit together, but everyone was kind of learning the system and 
some things were changing anyway and i just decided that like great we're we'll see where this goes for a little while it's like when we talked about character backstories you can have a backstory that is like concrete right at the beginning or you can have an emergent one that sort of develops as you play and you sort of see where things go and campaign prep can be exactly the same so when you do get to those pcs right like you want to consider what are the backstories that they're bringing to the table um because that's the stuff that you're going to want to like pull from to at least start your plot yeah go ahead and check out the episode on sowing plot seeds for how to do this specifically um and then also take a look just kind of from a player perspective like what is the way that you challenge pcs in this game and what's the way that they grow right like what is the way that the system allows them to advance um i think this is important because like a D character gets more and more abilities mostly focused on combat until they're you know, a, a one woman army. Whereas like, you know, a lot of like powered by the apocalypse games and especially like band of blades, like you don't advance very far. <laughs> like you just, you might only get a couple abilities. You might only be like one or two dice better than you started at the end of the game, just because you play so many different characters. Right. So like the development of a character is not going to come in the form of what's marked on their sheet. It's going to come from their relationship to, other characters in the game right and then think about something like a call of cthulhu game where you actually have characters who are typically getting worse and worse as the campaign continues yeah exactly slowly going insane or like losing body parts yeah and that informs how you tell your story right like a call of cthulhu game like you need to account for the fact that like the end spirals out of control quickly right like you're going to hit a point where like the answer needs to come and like make itself known and then probably eat the PCs um, at a moment that's going to become very stark because <laughs> eventually they, they gain too much corruption or too much insanity or, um, you know, they go too far down that death spiral where you just kind of, you have to end it, right? Mm-hmm. This will actually inform a lot of what the scope of your campaign is going to be. It's difficult to have you know, a multiversal threat in something like Band of Blades or Call of Cthulhu, even though the central conceit of Call of Cthulhu is there are multiversal threats. It's just not a system that is built for the players to take them on. Or, right. you know, you take them on and like fighting Dagon in a in a locked closet is basically the same as like Azathoth because you're still going to lose. Doesn't matter. Right, exactly. <laughs> like at the point where you're fighting, you've lost. Like right. you, won't, you won't be... Char- you won't be challenging your players with combat. You'll be challenging them with managing their insanity as they try to investigate further. Right. Now, on the other hand, if you're playing a Forgotten Realms game and you're telling people that we're going 1 to 20, they are going to expect to be like power brokers across the multiverse. Right. Because that's what you do once you hit level 16. Yep. Um, and then always the thing to keep in mind too is how much time do you have, right? Like, cause that is going to set a lot about the scope of your story. How much time do any of us have Shane? I'm only just a few fleeting years on this mm-hmm. earth. You shouldn't right. a long enough time, long enough time scale, like basically zero. You know, what gives me ennui thinking that I can probably only really play half a dozen really good long-term D and D campaigns in a lifetime. Oh, uh, that's cause you're old. Well, no, I mean anyone. Mm, anyone no. Shane I'm good I've got like an extra two because I'm younger than you well, I said good campaigns I think we're still at zero oh, okay. each. 
but keep in mind, like, it's not just the length that matters. It also depends, like, how long are your sessions, right, in the context of your game and how many of them and how often are they. If you're playing every single week, like, you, and you have years to do it, like, you can probably prep a much more granular campaign <laughs> where you can dig into a lot more detail on a lot smaller scale. Whereas like if you're meeting every month and you've only got a year, well that's 12 sessions and it's going to be more difficult to remember the nitty gritty details in between. Maybe you should kind of take it up a level of abstraction and, and maybe give them a little more like room to push and pull. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're talking about, uh, we're just playing birthright that naturally breaks down into three rounds per session because Mm -hmm. that's how long it takes. And if you want to do more than that, you have to play six. Right. It's like one, one season per session. Mm -hmm. All right. Next up, you want to establish the facts of the setting. So what proper nouns are you going to focus on? For example, the places that are going to be important, the people who are going to be important, the organizations that your players are going to interact with. Yeah, this is maybe a good time to look at the map. Um, and Or draw the map. <laughs> or draw the map, create the map. <laughs> um, then I think once you kind of establish some interesting places, interesting people, like, you know, dynamic organizations, right? Like kind of set them in a web of relationships. Um, then you can start establishing some setting facts, right? So the history of how these things interact, um, the role of religion or magic or technology in your world, mm-hmm. right? Like a D&D world, like all of those things are valid, but, you know, in something like Knights Black Asians, religion might be important, but magic and technology really aren't. Um, or, you know, technology might be super important and magic might work, but religion isn't that important to your game. So like kind of figure out where, where do those facts lie? And like, sometimes it's as simple as like, who are the deities, (laughs) right? Like, what is the pantheon of your world? Yeah. That'll give you the bits and pieces that you have to construct this campaign. So then you can start thinking about the story drivers. What are the threats? Like what threatens the people and the places and the ideas and the power structures that you have decided are going to be important? And what is it that all of them want? What are they striving for? What are the opportunities that they're looking for? Yeah, because in order to be a story, there has to be something that sets the PCs in motion, right? Like you need you need to ultimately get down to that level of why are all the PCs here in a group doing whatever they're going to be doing in session one, right? It's love, Shane. Love. Oh, great. That's an opportunity it's, it's or a answer. threat. <laughs> I mean, even if they're just caravan guards, right? There's some reason that they're all caravan guards. And then there's some reason that they go from being caravan guards to whatever it is that they're doing, you know, investigating a goblin hideout or um, pursuing a you know, the noble maiden who dropped her locket or whatever. And then I think the next thing that you want to focus on is the facts of the characters, the player characters themselves, right? So who they are as people, like how their backgrounds interact, what their personal stories are, like what the class that they're playing or the abilities that they have, like how all of that will be interacting with your world. So that, that kind of fixes them in place. So I think walking through these decisions 
is most integral when you are dealing with uh, an established setting where you have a ton of information that you can't possibly use, but it's still useful to think about in a homebrew setting. And actually, if you're doing something like Dungeon World, where the setting doesn't necessarily um, exist before the player is created, it gives you a, a place to start and basically a checklist of things that you need. But like, for example, in Eberron, you have uh 13 12 13 nations on one a single continent you have four different continents you've got uh 12 slash 13 dragon marked houses like there are so many things happening that no game no campaign can deal with all of them so the first thing you do is start selecting which place do i want to start having this set what other places might they visit what people are important which dragon mark houses are actually going to play a role because it cannot be all of them Mm -hmm. And then which additional organizations might I bring in? Will this be the Aurum? Will this be the Church of the Silver Flame? Sure, that interacts with the Blood of Vol, but they also interact with the Dwarves. It's like, there's no way you can do all of that. Pick a few, and then you know what what Lego pieces you have to build this campaign. Right. Um, that's I think that's kind of starting broad and then narrowing it down based mm -hmm. on your interests, like kind of where the characters that they've created have, or where the players have sort of displayed their interest with the characters they've created sort of getting it down to what's most essential to the campaign um the flip side right is start narrow and then expand outward from there so like you might not even necessarily have a setting kind of how eberron worked right where we started with the case of chaos and like that wasn't necessarily an eberron that was just in a fantasy place um and these adventures went in and when they got out of it like, oh, look around. Oh, we were playing Eberron, <laughs> right? Like, the characters knew that, of course. The players maybe didn't. So if you start from that kind of narrower perspective, then you're, I think, staying more character-centric, right? Like, you are fitting, especially if you're building the world from scratch, like, around them, like, you are making sure that the characters remain the center of the environment that you're building for them to play in versus... Like building out all of this stuff so that it's a perfect theoretical fantasy model um, and then having to squeeze a lot of lore that you've built out in order to make places for the characters. Yeah, it's a delicate balance uh, between building an entire canon that you feel completely beholden to versus building the track as the train is speeding down it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but a general framework is always going to be helpful. And I think often you are going to still want to use the tactic of beginning with where the players are and what they're interested in. And that already gives you a pool of things that you know that you're going to include, right? Like I mm -hmm. talked about before, like I don't really care about aberrations. Susie made a great old one warlock. Okay, great. I know the Delkir are in this game now. That's what's happening. Uh, Jim made a, a Kalashar this time. All right, Dreaming Dark is, is going to exist. Like this is going to be a foe that you face. Shane made a Fae druid. Now f*** Fae. F*** a Fae. There's been a ton of druid shit. <laughs> but not Fae. That's because you got confused and you were like, wait, I think I meant Lamania. No, wait, no, no, Thalanis. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> I never knew the difference. <laughs> Can't get confused with what you don't know. There have been Fae everywhere. It's lousy with Fae. Okay, so... Um, the other thing that you can do here, right, is to actually enlist the players and work with them in fleshing out the areas that they're most interested in. So, like, this is a great Session Zero activity of, like, you know, you have 
come with a character, you have an idea for a backstory, like let's start drawing out the details around that backstory. So give me proper nouns, give me people that you know, give me places that you've been, like tell me about the church that you're a cleric of, right? Because that's less information that I need to pull. Um, it, it And it gives like kind of a, another richness to the world, right? It, and it's an extra set of hands doing the building. So next up, plot the story. A couple ways you can do this. Of course, there's a sandbox game where you just let the story emerge uh, naturally from whatever the characters want to do or whatever direction they want to go in. Yeah, then you have story-driven campaigns where you set the PCs on a path and then you follow their actions to the conclusion. And then your railroad campaigns where you set them on a path and you make sure they hit the necessary story points to get to your intended ending. I'm not going to pass judgment, but... I know that I prefer to play the former, <laughs> um, though, of course, I think the pitfall here is that many people feel like when they plot their campaign, they need to be more along that railroad path in order to ensure that it all works and is satisfying. Um, I would just generally try to resist that urge unless you have very, very passive players. I mean, I would say that every successful campaign has some of these elements at some point, right? Oh, for sure, for sure. Like, there's definitely going to be a point where you're like, great, this is a run to the end of this arc. This is basically a railroad now because you've made all the decisions and now we're running through the consequences of those actions. Right, Right. and like a lot of times I would say for, for a campaign that I start I might actually have a great idea for a final battle, right? Mm-hmm. Or yeah. like a or a wonderful like conclusion to the and no idea how I'm going to get from the beginning to there, right? But I just know that like I have this cinematic set piece in mind um that is going to be there late. <laughs> um probably the end, but maybe not. Um and like that's as far as like I generally want to plan on a railroad. Um given that, you know, so much stuff happens over the course of a game that you can't account for it, it ends up being a lot of wasted work and a lot of frustratedly trying to fit like a square peg in a round hole. Right. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with developing a few way stations that you know that you're going to hit that sort of match up with the story arc that you're trying to plan out. Right. Um, so I, uh, you alluded to this, but like I focused almost entirely on the group's first adventure. Um, usually like the first two or three sessions, like that's pretty much the only place where I worry about world building for, for dynasty uh, unwarranted, uh, in general. Um, it's certainly what I did for dynasty unwarranted, but like, I don't look past three sessions typically up front because it's, it's just too far. Um, so I'll create NPCs with a lot of plot hooks. Um, I'll make sure that there's, you know, encounters that cover all of the different pillars of the game. Um, and then I'll see what shakes out, right? Like what draws the player's interests, what the characters get hooked into. Um, and that's the direction that I'll go next. And that's when I'll really start kind of getting more planning done um, and more direction to the campaign. So in Dynasty and Warranted, that was like, I knew you were starting in a Dark Eldar prison, and I pretty much expected that you would go to Gauntelgrim next because it was the closest safe place. Um, and I knew at, in Gauntelgrim there would be a war between the Imperials and Orcs. That's what I had. And that ended up being like 15 sessions, you know? It it actually wasn't that long. <laughs> it just felt that long? It felt interminable? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, Gauntelgrim, you were there for a while, but mm-hmm. I think the uh, I think it was actually turned out to be like five sessions in the uh, Dark Eldar prison. Yeah, but at least another five on Gauntelgrim. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
And then by that point, I think the characters were really fleshed out on Gauntlegrim. Like there were a lot of times for us to make decisions that would either get us into trouble or would like lead us in a sort of different direction for character growth. And I think that gave you a lot of information about the kind of story we were interested in playing. Exactly, which was terrible, terrible people (laughs) (laughs) doing anything to make a buck. Something that I can relate to. (laughs) And yet... We never made that many bucks. <laughs> uh, well, something I can relate to. <laughs> right. Just because your players have goals doesn't mean that they have to meet them. Right. <laughs> so how about for Morning Glory then? Uh, Morning Glory I do in the way that I typically plan a campaign, which is haphazardly. Start with a premise. Put players in a location and see how they react, almost like a laboratory for the first session or two. Uh, and then, you know, from from your session zero, you know the kind of story they're interested in telling, you know the kind of character that they want to be, but then you actually test those presuppositions by, like, putting them in the thick of things, putting them in the middle of a fight or moral dilemmas or something, seeing where that, that comes out. That gives a lot of people, even indecisive players, an idea of where this character is going to grow and then gives you a much better idea of the kind of themes, the kind of people, the places, um that they're actually interested in seeing. And then I sort of do the same thing as you were. I I say, okay, what is it that they're interested in? Great, we're going to do that thing. They finished the Caves of Chaos. They want to go to Sharn is what they said they wanted to do. Uh, what What's going to be in Sharn? I'll come up with two, maybe three potential things they could run into. And then it gets sandboxy, right? They, they can do whatever they want them when they get there. Right. I, I have some options for them. And then from there, they will pick a, a new direction to go in. They will go to that. And now you ha- you begin to build out this like this web or maybe this constellation of plot points. And I think I just kind of let it keep growing and branching out like an organizational chart until I feel that we're probably about halfway through the campaign. And then from there, I keep... I, I turn things in on themselves where if they want to go in a direction, that's great. That direction leads back towards some other plot point and we start connecting and connecting and connecting. Yeah. And then also you start pruning the different plots that people didn't really pick up or weren't too interested. Right. Exactly. We just resolve that one. Like, okay, this is either going to be too big. It has to be its own separate campaign rather than like the, the sort of main branch that we're going on. So I'm going to, wrap it up that person is going to die or they'll discover like the cause behind that and get rewarded for it and great it's over or like it peters out because they lost interest in it and honestly probably nobody remembers it but me right or like you know two years later someone's like hey what about that thing oh yeah don't worry about it right or actually it's been festering this entire time (laughs) exactly (laughs) Um, your your rival assassin cults over on Nova Bella. <laughs> I I actually look at this a lot. Like uh, when I'll read the, a long fantasy novel series, you'll notice that like plots and characters keep growing exponentially until one half to two thirds of the way through the series, and then people begin dying, mm-hmm. plots begin getting resolved, people live happily ever after and go away until you're pruned back down to the central goal and theme, which honestly is probably the original person you started with in the first place. Right. I knew that Wheel of Time was going off the rails when on book 10, they were still introducing new characters. And I was like, nope, nope. (laughs) This is supposed to be 12 books. 
So to wrap this up, I think this has mostly been pretty system agnostic, but I think it's probably worth just sort of mentioning some things to pay attention to with the system that you're playing. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, always good to refresh yourself on the rules, um, especially if you're going to be facilitating character creation as part of session zero. Um, usually people look to the GM to ask how things work. So um, good to have a grasp of that. Um, and then I also like to make sure I know how core mechanics work and how to build encounters. Um, and if I can build them on the fly, I do that. Um, but otherwise I, I prep a few generic encounters so that I can always like reskin them or just drop them, um, whenever I need them. Yeah. I would not underestimate the importance of system mastery here. Like just building a really cool encounter. And that doesn't necessarily mean combat, right? It, it could be a social encounter or like an entire session that that's RP, but throwing in a, a giant or cool or iconic set piece that really pulls everybody in can very much distract from a lack of planning on your mm-hmm. part. <laughs> Just one dinner party perfectly executed. Seriously, I have absolutely no idea how they're going to get out of this or how why this is important, but I'm going to put them in a dinner party and they'll figure it out. Right. Like I feel confident that I can adjudicate the difficulty. Right. We can do this. It's almost like um rebooting another like session 0 or session 0.5, right? Mhm. Like, uh, great, let's check in with the the players and the characters and see what they're actually interested in uh, by deciding which of these guests they speak to. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, And then just last thing is pay attention to how you get your narrative input as the GM. Um, Like in D&D, it's pretty straightforward because the PCs just act directly. Um, You know, they roll dice. But in other games like Cypher System or powered by the apocalypse or forge in the dark like the players roles actually dictate more of when the gm gets to intervene um so the way that you plan your plot has to be a little bit more malleable when you can't simply interject or you know roll dice and fudge or or things like that right and then you look at something like genesis where the gm isn't rolling but you have so much leeway in how you interpret every single uh, Mm -hmm. die roll that the players will make. Right. All right. Do you hear that, Asian? That is the sound of me hurriedly putting down track because I see that train a-coming, and I'm only building one path. Well, then it's time to move on to the character creation forge and figure out who's tied to those tracks. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. This week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Hero Forge. Hey, hey, new sponsor. Look at this, look at this. Hero Forge offers fully customizable tabletop miniatures with dozens of fantasy races and thousands of parts to choose from. Wait a minute, parts? Parts, Shane? Oh, yeah, parts. You uh, use their easy-to-use design tool and build your perfect miniature online using a fully 3D in-depth character creator right inside your browser. You can pick all types of different little things, like what's in the left hand, what's in the right hand, what's in the hip. Uh, Do you have wings or not? Do you remember doing that 
in like Neverwinter Nights mm-hmm. or any other online RPG where you just sit there for the first two hours. I mean, after you spent two hours rolling your stats, right. then you sit there for another at least hour picking your skin tone and yep. choosing how long your hair is and what face do I want? Human one, half of four, how long are my legs? What does my tunic look like? Guess what? You can do all of that and then get it printed. Exactly. You can print a custom mini in a variety of materials, including plastic and metal. It's also pretty dangerous for GMs who are like, I want all of the enemies to have a fully customizable miniatures. Exactly. HeroForge also offers downloadable model files for people who have their own 3D printers so you can print at home. Also, this is for people who work at a place that has a maker studio or a 3D printer at work. <laughs> exactly. I uh, gamed with some uh, people who worked at um, a production house and agency, and they definitely had a maker studio, and they definitely all printed their own uh, minis to, to nice. bring. And they were like, I, just, I, got, I got new equipment. Right. I printed a new one. <laughs> <laughs> So HeroForge is constantly expanding the catalog of customization options. They're adding new parts every week and major features like races and custom poses on a regular basis. I will also say it is a good way to get female minis because there is a dearth of those pre-made. Oh yeah, um, especially in like some of the otter races, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like it's easier to get uh, human females. It is way more difficult to get like a furbolg female or just a dwarf. Or a dwarf. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so visit HeroForge.com to start designing your custom miniature today. And check back often because there's new content added every single week. Almost like this show. All right, this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building Beatrix Kiddo, the protagonist of Kill Bill. And Kill Bill 2. Spoiler alert, she doesn't die in the first one. (laughs) Well, it's ruined. Uh, She is, of course, one of the deadly Viper assassins. She was sold out by Bill, her boss, and left for dead at her own wedding. I know. She was just called the bride for the first one. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. All right, so Shane, what's the build? The build is Kensei Monk 18, Bladesinger Wizard 2. So from Bladesinger, we're going to get some great attack cantrips because, of course, she's excellent with the sword, Green Flame Blade, and Booming Blade. And a couple first level spells. Shield is a good one. Easily reflavored as a parry and absorb elements because she can just take a beating. She really does just take a beating. Like, it's absurd. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Part of that that helps is she has high AC, which is partially from her blade song. Uh, So twice per short rest, you can activate it as a bonus action and get your intelligence bonus to your AC. Uh, You'll also get 10 feet of movement, and uh, you'll be able to add your intelligence modifier to your concentration saving throws. And perhaps even more thematic, you'll get advantage on dexterity acrobatics checks. Yeah, I mean, it's not like it was a wuxia movie or anything. I like to think of it as it's not that she is singing a blade song. It's that her theme music comes in. (laughs) Right, exactly. The blade song begins, and the blood flies. All right, from Kensei, you get all of the monk goodies. Note that your flurry of blows and many of the abilities from Kensei are going to require you to use the attack action so they don't work with Green Flame Blade. Uh, however, you can use Stunning Strike. 
Yeah, you'll also get unarmored defense. Um, you'll add 30 feet to your movement, so that'll be a total of 70 feet of movement with your blade song. That's uh, pretty fast. And then from Kensei, you can choose both melee and a ranged weapon as your Kensei weapons. Of course, you're going to pick the long sword. Um, yeah, and these count as monk weapons for all of your other abilities. So um, that damage will increase once you get to level 11. You'll you know add your um, martial arts die instead of the regular damage. You get agile parry, so when you make an unarmed strike, uh, with the attack action while you're holding it, you get a plus 2 to AC. Yeah, so this will not apply to a flurry of blows. Uh, you can always trigger a flurry of blows, but flurry of blows cannot be the unarmed strike. And with a ranged weapon, like a gun, for example, or I guess a hand crossbow, uh, you will get an extra D4 to damage with a bonus action from Kensei's shot. Um, and then, of course, you get Way of the Brush, which is proficiency in calligrapher supplies or painter supplies. I don't know that we see anything of that in her background, but it wouldn't really surprise me. No, let's just assume. Uh, you get extra attack, stunning strike, evasion. Uh, at level six, the Kensei gets one with the blade, so your weapon counts as magic, and you can spend key to add uh, more damage. Yep. Uh, at level 11, you'll get sharpen the blade, so as a bonus action, you can spend up to three key to give your Kensei weapon up to a plus three bonus for one minute. To make your blade a Hattori Hanzo blade. <laughs> exactly. And at 17, you get unerring accuracy once per turn. Reroll a failed attack roll. Um, and then the capstone ability will be empty body at level 18. So you can spend four key to become invisible for one minute, or you can ca- or you can spend eight key to cast astral projection on yourself only. As for leveling order, pretty simple. Start Bladesinger 2, and then Monk straight through to 18. All right, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are talking about how to use dragons in your game. And in the character creation forge. We're building, I can't believe we haven't built one before, the Dragon Slayer. Well, that's it for episode 223 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons and Dragons. You can use D&D Beyond to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures, and do so much more. Like build encounters now yeah that's just been released in beta uh, i guess they're working out a few bugs there but um it looks cool it's an easy way to um sort through monsters by cr or different qualities and pull them in calculate the xp based on um what adventures are in your party does all your multipliers and modifiers for you it's a uh, pretty nifty kind of like a uh, cobalt fight club except you know it actually has all the rules and stat blocks right in front of you so we'll keep trying it out. Uh, if you've tried it out, let us know, and you know maybe maybe we can give us some feedback. There's also lots of other awesome content for free, like articles from writers like James J. Heck and videos from people like Todd Kenrick. And it also comes with the D&D Basic Rules, so you don't even have to subscribe in order to get some value out of the content there. All right, so you can check all of that out at dndbeyond.com. Works for me.